Section 27 of Early Rome by Wilhelm Ina. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 21. The Invasion of the Gauls. The large and fruitful plain in the north of Italy, extending on both sides of the Po, from the Alps to the Adriatic and the Apennines, had been for some time in possession of the Etruscans, who had built and fortified twelve cities and lived in a sort of confederacy, similar to that which loosely bound together the towns of Etruria proper. Long before the rise of Rome, the power of the Etruscans was at its height. Their settlements extended from the Alps to Campania, and their ships swept the sea, which after them was called the Tyrrhenian. When Rome rose to independence and preponderance in Latium, the Etruscan power gradually declined. They lost Campania on the advance of the Sabellian races into that fertile plain. They were driven out of Latium by Rome and her Latin allies, and at the same time, when even the soil of Etruria proper was assailed, and Veii, the most powerful Etruscan town in the south of that region, fell prey to Rome, their settlements in the north were invaded by a more ruthless conqueror, and all the vestiges of Etruscan civilization in that beautiful plain of the Po were stamped out by the Gauls. It is most probable that the inhabitants of Transalpine Gaul, the country which has now for centuries borne the name of France, had been accustomed in very early ages to cross the mountain ranges which separated them from Spain and Italy for the purpose of plunder or permanent settlements in the more southern regions. In Spain they amalgamated with the native Iberian tribes and formed the mixed race known as Celti-Iberians. In Italy they expelled the former inhabitants from the country, which after them was called Cisalpine Gaul. These migrations and settlements were in all probability not affected by one wholesale exodus, but like the Teutonic conquest of Britain, were the work of a long period of time, during which tribe after tribe followed the impulse given by the first adventurers. At length, when the greater part of Cisalpine Gaul was filled by the newcomers, the flood of migration was turned southwards. It filled the plain between the Apennines and the Adriatic, where the old Umbrian population gave way to the Gallic Senones. It mounted the passes of the Apennines, and at length came pouring down into the fertile valleys of Etruria proper. Five years after the capture of Veii by Camillus, a barbaric host appeared before the city of Clusium, a few days' march north of Rome. The danger had approached sufficiently near to rouse the attention of the Romans, even if they had been indifferent to the fate of their neighbors. Livy relates that the people of Clusium, in their extreme danger, sent ambassadors to implore the aid of Rome, and that the Senate dispatched three men of the noble house of the Fabii to expostulate with the Gauls and to request them not to molest the allies of the Roman people. It is further related that the Gauls, not heeding the interference of a people of whom they had not even heard, attacked Clusium, and that the Fabii, forgetful of their sacred character of ambassadors, took part in the battle, and fought foremost in the ranks of the Etruscans, that upon this breach of the law of nations the Gauls demanded the surrender of the ambassadors, and when this was refused by the Romans, forthwith abandoned the prosecution of hostilities against Clusium and marched straight upon Rome. 
This story, if not altogether fictitious, seems dressed up to flatter the vanity of the Roman patriots. The language put in the mouth of the ambassadors savors of the arrogance which at a later time dictated the language of Roman diplomacy, when the power of Rome disdained the decencies of international politeness and everywhere exhibited itself in its naked brutality. We prefer, therefore, the account of Diodorus, who tells us that the Romans did not send ambassadors, but spies. If this account is more correct, it follows that all about the participation of the Fabii in the fight and their distinguished bravery, about the offence taken by the Gauls and their message of expostulation to Rome, in short, about all that is represented as a consequence of the breach of international law, falls to the ground. Nor, in truth, is it necessary to search for a particular reason why the Gauls should have marched upon Rome. They were on a plundering expedition. It was surely a sufficient inducement for them to attack the Romans if they could hope to obtain their ends, and they were probably not too scrupulous in requiring a legitimate cause of war. At any rate, the Romans were not taken unawares. They had drawn out their whole strength and were joined by their allies. Thus they marched out 40,000 strong to meet the invaders who were advancing 70,000 strong along the left bank of the Tiber. Near the small river Alia, the two armies met, about 10 miles from Rome, on the fatal 18th of July, 390 B.C. The encounter was sharp, short, and decisive. The impetuous onset of the barbarians, their wild battle cry, and their fierce uncouth appearance dismayed the Romans, who seized with a panic, fled almost without offering resistance. It was a slaughter more than a battle. Thousands rushed into the river to save themselves by swimming to the opposite bank, and many met their death in the waves. The consular tribune, A. Sulpicius, with a remnant of the army, made good his retreat to Rome, while the greater part of the fugitives collected in Veii, the late rival of Rome, which, although overthrown, dismantled, and deserted, was now the only place of refuge for what remained of the Roman legions. The Roman people never forgot the terrible day of Alia. The 18th of July was marked as a black day in the Roman calendar and was held unpropitious for any public undertaking. The terrible defeat and its more terrible consequences made such an impression on the public mind that the Gaul was ever afterwards dreaded as the most terrible of enemies. On the third day after the fatal battle, the victorious barbarians appeared before the city. The Romans, instead of availing themselves of the respite thus given them, and of taking measures for the defense of the walls, thought of nothing but flight. They poured out of the city, carrying with them their most precious and easily transportable possessions, and sought refuge in the neighboring towns. It is related that some of the sacred objects of the temples were secretly buried, and that the Vestal Virgins, carrying with them the eternal flame from their sanctuary, hurried along with the crowd across the wooden bridge and up the geniculus, until a plebeian citizen bade them mount a wagon on which he was conveying his wife and children from the general wreck. When the Gauls found the walls destitute of defenders, they at first feared an ambush, and hesitated for a while before breaking open the gates and penetrating into the deserted streets. They were appalled by the stillness which reigned as in a city of the dead. On advancing as far as the marketplace, 
they observed a number of venerable grey-bearded men sitting motionless like statues dressed in robes of office they were senators who had determined not to survive the downfall of their country and who had devoted themselves to death a gaul doubtful what to think of these figures plucked one by the beard a blow on his head from the offended senator convinced him that he had a living roman before him and a general massacre of all the devoted band was the consequence but besides these few defenceless old men other romans had stayed behind the capital had not been abandoned like the remainder of the city it was garrisoned by a number of stout-hearted warriors determined to conquer or fall in the defence of the sanctuary of jupiter capitolinus the symbol and centre of the roman power they repelled an attack of the gauls and compelled them to trust to the slow effect of a regular siege if they wished to reduce the place meanwhile the city was sacked by the barbarians and reduced to ashes it is said that only a few houses on the palatine escaped the general conflagration in this sad calamity perished all or almost all the monuments of antiquity and the records of the past the gauls persisted in pressing the siege with a constancy hardly natural to such a restless and impatient race the garrison on the capital seemed to be hopelessly lost when one night a young man called pontius cominius sent from the roman fugitives at veii made his way by swimming to a spot near the foot of the capital and frustrating the watchfulness of the gauls scaled the rock at a place known to him as accessible to a nimble climber he reported to the military tribune in command that the roman force collected at veii was about to come to the rescue of the besieged and that they only wanted the banished camillus to be their leader the decree recalling camillus from banishment and appointing him dictator was made immediately and cominius hastened back the same way he had come this exploit however nearly proved fatal to the defenders of the capital the gauls had noticed his footsteps on the rock and following in the same track succeeded on a dark night in reaching the top unobserved by the roman sentinels even the dogs were remiss in their watchfulness only the geese kept in the temple of juno as birds sacred to the goddess set up a loud cackling and thus roused marcus manlius one of the officers in charge he immediately gave the alarm and rushing to the spot where the foremost gauls had already reached the top of the rock he hurled them down upon their companions and thus saved the citadel this danger was luckily averted but the siege continued and the garrison on the capital was sorely pressed provisions began to fail as month after month elapsed and no rescue appeared the blockade had now lasted six months the gauls too began to suffer from want of provisions they were obliged to detach parts of their army for the purpose of collecting supplies one of these bodies was set upon by the people of ardea under the command of camillus and routed with great slaughter at length brennus the leader of the gauls was fain to make an agreement with the romans on the capital and to promise to retire upon payment of a sum of money one thousand pounds of gold was the ransom to be paid by the roman people the money was procured by borrowing the treasures from the temples and the ornaments of the roman matrons when the roman commissioners were in the act of paying the gold to brennus in the forum just at the foot of the capital and when upon their complaints of the false weight used by the gauls 
Brennus had just thrown his sword into the balance with the insulting words, Woe to the conquered. Camillus suddenly appeared on the spot, and declaring that the agreement was null and void because it had been concluded without the dictator's consent, drove the Gauls off the forum and out of the city. On the next day he encountered them outside the gates and routed them so signally that not a man escaped. Brennus himself fell under the sword of the conqueror, who shouted into his ears the terrible words he himself had first used in the insolence of victory, Woe to the conquered! Thus Rome was saved, not only from her foes, but also from the disgrace of owing her deliverance to the payment of gold rather than to the sword, and Camillus restored to his country became the second founder of the city. We have related the story of the capture and delivery of Rome in the form which it had assumed in Livy's time under the influence of patriotic tradition. We need hardly say that it is colored by national and family pride, and that some of its features resemble more a theatrical catastrophe than sober reality. Fortunately, in the narratives of Diodorus and Polybius, some traces of an older and less falsified tradition have been preserved by the help of which we can clear away some at least of the fictions of the later analysts. It is at any rate certain that the Gauls, after their victory on the Aelia, entered Rome and destroyed the city with the exception of the capital. But we may doubt whether the destruction was so systematic and complete as it is generally represented. Whether all the stone buildings and the walls of the city were pulled down after the combustible matter had been consumed by the flames. A regular destruction of solid masonry is a work of time and great labor, such as would not be likely to be undertaken by invaders like the Gauls, who had no object in view but rapine and plunder. We know from Diodorus and Justin that the Gauls penetrated as far as Iapygia in the extreme south of Italy, and that some of them entered as mercenaries into the service of Dionysius of Syracuse, then at war with the Greek towns in Italy. Being bent on such distant enterprises, from which ample gain and booty were to be expected, how should they have been induced to waste their time and energy in pulling down what remained of the houses, temples, monuments, or walls after they had ransacked them for treasures and committed them to the flames? Besides the walls and temples, Rome contained at that time very few solid structures. The majority of the private houses were mere straw-thatched or shingle-covered huts. Yet even among the private buildings, some may have been built at least in part of stone, and most of these may have survived the conflagration. Thus it is possible that even outside the capital a few monuments of antiquity were preserved, and that the ancient records were not so completely destroyed as the later analysts have reported. We are the more fully justified in adopting this view, as we can hardly believe the statement that the Gauls encamped on the site of the ruins of Rome for seven months to press the siege of the capital. They could hardly have done so without exposing themselves to the most destructive effects of a climate not merely unhealthy but deadly to a northern people. In fact, they would not have been barbarians but madmen, if with the prospect of a protracted siege before them they had deliberately destroyed the shelter of which they would have felt such urgent need. We refer again to the testimony of Diodorus and Justin, who speak of the extension of the Gallic invasion to southern Italy. With such a march southwards, the blockade of the capital for seven months is incompatible, and cannot therefore be admitted as historical. 
The oldest stories of the part played by Camillus seem to presuppose that the Gauls did not stay a very long time in the ruins of Rome. They represent Camillus as elected dictator and as in command of a Roman force outside the city. Surely they could not look upon him as inactive for many months, or as engaged only in hovering on the outskirts of the territory occupied by the invaders. The story of Camillus is essentially dramatic in character. It brings the hero on the scene of action in a manner nothing short of marvellous, like a deus ex machina, and it would not have resulted to the honour of such a hero to wait seven months and let his countrymen undergo the agonies of despair and famine before he came to their rescue. But after all, the story of Camillus appears to be only a fiction invented for the glory of the Furian house to which Camillus belonged. Not to dwell on other points, we will simply quote the testimony of Polybius, who said that the Gauls withdrew unmolested with their booty, having voluntarily and on their own terms restored the town to the Romans. After this explicit statement, what becomes of the heroic deeds of Camillus, or of the unjust scales with the sword of Brennus, and of his expulsion from the Forum, which was so ignominious, and yet less ignominious than wonderful? It is clear that all the various and conflicting stories which relate the utter discomfiture of the Gauls and the recovery of the booty or ransom are fictions calculated to soothe the wounded pride of the Romans and to glorify the family of Camillus. Hardly less suspicious is the story of the Capitoline geese and of Marcus Manlius, the savior of the capital. They both belong to the class of legends called ideological, that is, invented to account for an existing custom or a name. The goose was a bird sacred to Juno, and it acquired this honor not by the achievement of the watchful defenders of the capital, for the fact of geese being kept in the sanctuary of Juno at the time of the siege shows that the custom was older than that date. There was an annual festival in honor of Juno celebrated with a public procession in which geese were carried through the town on soft cushions and festively adorned, whilst dogs were nailed on boards. The story of the neglect of the dogs and the watchfulness of the geese was probably invented to account for this ancient custom. The share of Manlius in the saving of the capital may have been inferred from his name Capitolinus, a name derived more probably from his residence on the Capitoline Hill. Whatever may have been the duration of the occupation of Rome by the Gauls, and however extensive the destruction caused by the invasion, it is certain that the injury done to the Republic was not vital. On the contrary, the material losses seem to have been soon repaired. The city was rebuilt in a very short time. The ascendancy of Rome over her dependent allies, if it was weakened momentarily, was soon fully re-established, and what is more important than all this, the framework of the Constitution bore the strain of disastrous war without giving way in any part. When the storm had passed over, and the damage which it had caused was repaired, Rome continued her career of internal reform and foreign conquests, not merely with unimpaired, but with invigorated energy. Only fourteen years after the Battle of Aelia, Licinius and Sextius began the agitation for the equal division of the consular power between patricians and plebeians, which ten years later led to the Licinian laws in 366 B.C. In the year 387 B.C., only three years after the Gallic catastrophe, 
the first great addition was made to the Roman territory. Four new tribes were formed out of the conquered Veientine land, and added to the original twenty-one tribes to which the Republic had been limited for one hundred and twenty years. Twenty-nine years later, in 358 BC, two more tribes were added from acquisitions in Latium, and at the same time the League with the Latins was renewed on a fresh basis, which made Latium practically a dependency of Rome. A few years later, in 354 BC, the spreading influence and increasing power of Rome appears in the conclusion of a treaty of friendship with the great nation of the Samnites. In 348 BC, a commercial treaty was concluded with Carthage, and in 343 BC, not half a century after the invasion of the Gauls, Rome was powerful enough to enter on that long-continued struggle with the Samnites, which resulted in the acquisition of undoubted supremacy in Italy. It may be doubted whether the Gauls had done more harm or more good to the Roman people by their invasion of Italy. If Rome was paralyzed for a moment by the blow on the Aelia, perhaps the neighbors of Rome were more vitally injured, and thus the relative strength of Rome increased. Besides, the Gauls were now looked upon as the natural enemies of all the native races of Italy, and as they continued their periodical invasions for a considerable time, Rome acquired by degrees the position of a defender of the common soil, and the right to unite the Italians into a large confederation. This confederation under the Roman leadership was the mighty state which in the succeeding generations overthrew Carthage, the kingdoms of Macedonia and Syria, the commonwealths of Greece, the barbarians of northern Italy and Spain, and which, when it had outgrown the forms of federal and republican institutions, was changed into an absolute military monarchy, which completed the work of conquest. End of section 27. Recording by Pamela Nagami, M.D. in Encino, California, July 2019. End of Early Rome, From the Foundation of the City to Its Destruction by the Gauls, by Wilhelm Ina.